passage is Isaiah 42, so turn to the Old Testament, just about right in the middle of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 42. This is week three of a six-week stop in Isaiah during the Christmas season. We're going back to the Old Testament. We're looking at prophecies in the book of Isaiah, prophecies that point us forward to Jesus. And these prophecies talk to us about the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, even the resurrection of Jesus. When you take all of these prophecies together, we've looked at Isaiah 7 and 9 this morning at 42. We have three more to come. Taken all together, they remind us during the Christmas season that Jesus was born to die. Jesus was born to die. Our text is Isaiah 42, and I just want to remind you of what we've seen so far. Two weeks back, we looked at Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 contains a prophecy about the birth and the identity of Jesus. And without rehashing the entire thing, I'll just say that Isaiah 7 reminds us, it teaches us that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 9, which also contains a prophecy about the birth and the identity of Jesus. And Isaiah 9 begins to develop that picture a little bit more. What does it mean that Jesus is God with us? And Isaiah 9 speaks into that sort of lingering question and says, well, Jesus is human. He's born. He's really a baby who was born. You saw that in chapter 7. You see it again in 9. This is a a human baby. At the same time, he's God. And Isaiah 9 says that he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. To Isaiah 42, our passage, I'll give you the immediate context. If you read Isaiah 41, you'll find a denunciation of idolatry. Really, it's Isaiah making fun of idols and people who worship idols. And if you've ever read through the book of Isaiah, you know that he does this a lot. He sort of pokes, and he sort of laughs, and he sort of exposes the folly of idolatry and the folly of those who worship idols. Just to give you an example of this, look at Isaiah 41. I'll put it up on the screen. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. This is God speaking to the false gods, to the idols, saying, tell us what happened in the past. Give us a history lesson. Tell us what's coming in the future. Predict something that's going to come about. Give us a proof to know that you are real gods. Do good or do harm. Do something that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. It's God mocking the idols laughing at the idols, exposing the fact that they don't know the past, they don't know what's going to come in the future, they can't do good things for you, they can't bring harm to you, they are nothing. And the works of the hands of the idols are less than nothing. And the people who chase after these idols, these gods that are not worthy to be called gods, they're an abomination 
before the Lord. So there's this strong denunciation of idolatry. That brings us to Isaiah 42, and our passage is verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's the first of Isaiah's quote-unquote servant songs. Servant songs. Jewish scholars have long recognized these four sections in Isaiah. Christian Bible scholars pull them out. Four portions in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and then 52 and 53. It it overlaps. These four songs about the servant of the Lord. And as long as there has been a church, all the way back to the beginning, Christian Theologians, Christian pastors, Christian Bible scholars have looked at these passages and said, that's about Jesus. Those are songs that were spoken by the prophet that were looking into the future. The servant of the Lord is Jesus. And so we're going to talk this morning about the first of the servant songs. Here's the big idea of the song in Isaiah 42. The servant of the Lord was sent to establish justice. Justice. And I just want to acknowledge, before we even read the passage, for people who live in the United States in 2018, especially in recent years, justice is a loaded word. It comes with a lot of connotations for a lot of different people. And some people hear the word justice, and all they can think about is legal justice, the kind of justice that we look for in a courtroom. And other people hear the word justice, and all they can think about is racial justice, And how we ought to bring that about. Other people hear the word justice and they think about economic justice. There ought to be some sort of economic justice in the world that we live in. We come to this passage with all these sort of preconceived ideas about what justice means. And as I read the song this week, I almost found myself thinking, I wish Isaiah would have used a different word. Because in 2018 in the United States, we hear the word justice and we think all kinds of crazy things. And it's really challenging to sort of set those things aside. Remember, Isaiah did not live in our day and time, culture, and context. And when he's talking about justice, he wasn't thinking about all the conversations that we have today regarding justice. And so we're going to try to set those things aside. Think about what it means that the servant of the Lord was sent to establish justice. So let's read the passage, and then we'll jump in. Isaiah 42, we're going to read the first four verses. The Word of God says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. It's the word of God from Isaiah 42. This morning and the next several weeks, our focus is going to be who is the servant of the Lord? What what does Isaiah want us to know about the servant of the Lord and how is this pointing us forward to Jesus and shaping the way that we think about Christmas? Before we do that in Isaiah 42, I need you to think about three words. 
and I put them on your notes. I didn't really put any explanations or blanks to fill in, so you can write something down if you want to or you cannot. I just want to get your mind thinking before we jump in. First of all, I want you to think about the word behold. Behold. We read it as sort of a a churchy Bible word and we just skip over it. Right? It doesn't have a lot of meaning for us. We just say, oh, that's how they talked back then. Well, no, it's not how they talked back then. It's a very important word, and it's very unfortunate that we read it and we skip right over it because the point of the word is that you don't skip right over it. It's sort of like a wake-up call. It's sort of like, hey, listen up. I'm about to tell you something really important, and you need to pay attention. It's sort of like Jesus when he would say to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you. Does that mean the other things weren't true? Well, of course not. It just means he's trying to get their, int- their attention. He's trying to engage with them. And ultimately, that's really the job of the prophet. That's the job of Isaiah, is to walk into our everyday lives that are filled with work and weather and school and family and all the things that just seem very earthy, and to say to us, wake up. Listen, I have something important to say to you. I have a message from the Lord. You need to pay attention to this. You you can't get caught in the humdrum, just routine of everyday life. I need you to listen. I need you to pay attention. What I'm about to say to you is very, very important. The word behold. Secondly, I want you to think about the word justice. If you were paying attention, you saw it three times in the four verses we just read. Verse 1 says he will bring justice to the nations. Verse 3 says he will faithfully bring forth justice. And verse 4 says he will establish justice in the earth. Justice, justice, justice. And as I said earlier, we hear that word in our political climate, our cultural climate, and we have all sort of preconceived ideas about what that means. That means, is he talking about economic justice and and equity on on a financial level, or is he talking about racial justice and everybody sort of treating each other the, the way we ought to be treated, or what sort of justice is he talking about? I just want you to think about this word, justice. The biblical idea of this word is the idea of having all things set right. Everything in its place, everything doing what it was designed to do, everything being set right. An antonym or an opposite of this word justice in the Hebrew language is the Hebrew word tohu, not tofu, not the fake meat stuff, tohu, tohu. You read it in the the book of Genesis when it describes the chaos of creation in the beginning. It says the earth was formless and without void. It was just chaotic. That's what the word tohu means, chaos. And that's the opposite of this word justice. You can have justice or you can have chaos. You can have everything right and in its place or you can have everything completely gone awry. The exact word is actually used in the book of Exodus when they're talking about the tabernacle. And it talks about in Exodus 36 that God is going to have a plan for this tent. That's the same word, right? Everything's going to be in its place. Nothing's going to be haphazard. Nothing's going to sort of be left to your own decision to wing it or just see how it falls into place. Everything is going to be exactly the way that God wants it to be. That's this word, justice. And last week, we took a little stroll through human history. 
We talked about the Egyptians and we talked about the Assyrians and we talked about the, the Greeks and the Romans and the kings of Europe and the United States and communist governments. And one of the things we said through all of those governments is that throughout human history, no one has ever been able to cobble together a perfectly just society. We've tried. Some have, have succeeded more than others, but all of us have fallen short in that. Even in our own system, we look around and we say, there's laws in, in our own country that we shouldn't have. And there's children that are hungry in our, our own country. They shouldn't be hungry. There's things that happen in our own society that shouldn't be happening. Everything isn't right. Everything isn't in its place. And what we do as human beings, at least in our culture, 2018, the United States, is we say, well, let's try to change things. Let's try to change the laws. Let's try to get another political party in power. Let's try to make a difference. Let's try. All those things are fine, but you got to listen to what Isaiah 42 is saying. Justice comes when the servant comes. It doesn't come through your political party or that political party. It doesn't come through this platform or that platform. It doesn't come with a bunch of legislation or less legislation. Isaiah says it's the servant He's going to bring justice to the nations. He's going to faithfully bring forth justice. He's the one that will establish justice in the earth. He's the one who will set it all right. And until he comes, we can't force things into that, that situation or that circumstance. But the prophet is talking to us about justice. The last word I want you to think about is the word servant. Servant. All the ways that Isaiah could have described this one to come who will bring justice, he describes him here and three more times as a servant. When I say the word servant, you think of lowly people. You think of people who exist to do things for others, not for themselves. You think, if we're honest, about someone you would rather not be, a servant. That's what happened 2,000 years ago when God took on human flesh. He came as a servant, as somebody who was lowly, not to do something for himself, but to do something for others. He was born into a humble family. He was born in, a, in an obscure place, essentially in a barn with the animals. He grew up in a despised part of the nation. It wasn't where the intelligentsia was. It wasn't where the, the political power was. It was sort of the, the backwoods country. And he grew up, to make it even worse, in a, a redneck hillbilly town. People looked down upon. And they said things like, what, what good thing could come out of that town? What great person would ever come from that place? He worked a blue-collar job. All the things that he could have done in his life, he just... Worked a blue-collar job. He worked with his hands. Even when people began to be excited and they began to follow him and they began to, to be interested in him and crowds began to develop, he shunned celebrity at every opportunity. He, just, he pushed it away. He ran away from the crowds at times. He intentionally said things to drive the crowds away, knowing that they wouldn't want to hear it. He, he did things like touching lepers. He did things like playing with children. Things that everyone looked down upon. He did them intentionally. 
And at the end of his life, he was executed as a criminal in a humiliating way, naked, for everyone to see, just put up on a pole. He humbled himself, and he became a servant in his life and in his death. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2 when he says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." The servant of Isaiah 42 was born to die. Born to die. What do we learn about him in Isaiah 42? Let me point out a few things. Number one, the servant of the Lord was sent by God. Everything associated with the servant was God's doing. Look at verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. God is the actor in all of that. He takes the initiative in all of it. It's not anything that we've manufactured. It's not anything that we've sought out. God goes out of his way to say, the servant is mine. I'm going to uphold him. I have chosen him. I delight in him. I'm the one that's going to put my spirit upon him. God is acting in all of those verbs. You understand, that's the essence of Christianity, right? That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of the earth. Christianity is not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has done for you. Every other religion says, here's what you need to do to earn your way or to merit your way or to deserve some good thing from the deity. And Christianity says, you can't do any of that. God has done it for you. It's not about your actions. It's about God's actions. And the prophet is driving that point home. Listen, all of this language in verse 1 gets repeated in the New Testament when you read about Jesus' baptism. Here comes the servant. Humbling himself and identifying with sinners. John knew it was ridiculous. John the Baptist, he said, what in the world are you doing here? You should be dunking me. I should not be dunking you. This is a baptism of repentance. You have no sin to repent of. And Jesus said, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. And he humbles himself. And the voice from heaven says what? This is my son and I'm pleased with him. He is the one in whom my soul delights. And the Spirit of God comes down and rests upon him. And Matthew ties all these details together from Isaiah 42. And he's saying, Isaiah is talking about Jesus. He's the one who was sent by God. Secondly, the servant of the Lord was gentle and patient. Gentle and patient. Look at Isaiah 42, 2 and 3. It says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He's not a braggart. He's not a boaster. He's not some huckster who's out for his own celebrity and his own publicity. You won't even hear his voice in the street. He's that humble. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick, or some translations say a smoldering wick, he will not quench. 
to those who are, are suffering, those who are hurting, those who are without hope. He's not come to finish you off. So many people have that idea of God, right? That God is just waiting to pounce on them. God is just waiting to punish them. God is just waiting to crush them. And Isaiah says, God's not like that at all. Don't think about him like that. The servant of the Lord, he's not come to finish you off. He's come to give you life. To those who have no hope, he's come to give hope. To the paralyzed, with no hope at all, who get lowered through a roof, he's not come to finish you off. He's come to make you whole, to forgive your sins. To the widow standing by the casket of her only child, crying and grieving and hurting, he hasn't come to finish you off. He's come to give you hope, and he gives, he gives that woman her son back. To the tax collector who feels crushed by the weight of his sin when he looks into the law of God and he knows how ugly his heart is. He hasn't come to finish you off. He's come to forgive you and to call you into discipleship. He's gentle and he's patient. The Gospel of Matthew describes this in an amazing story. It's Matthew chapter 12. It's the Sabbath day. Jesus goes to worship in the synagogue. There's a man in the synagogue whose hand is withered. He's crippled in his hand. We don't know why, but he's there. And the Pharisees had a a rule. They had a law about the Sabbath. They said, look, you can help people with medical care on the Sabbath, but only if it's an emergency, only if it's a life-threatening situation. So if that person's going to make it to tomorrow, don't do it on the Sabbath, wait till the next day. That's not God's law, that was their law. Jesus knows it and he's sitting in the synagogue and he sees this man, Jesus the servant, the one who didn't come to to snuff out smoldering wicks or snap in half bruised reeds. And he sees the man and he heals him in the synagogue in front of the Pharisees for everyone to see. And they're outraged. I mean, they just lose their mind. They're so angry. Church and, and worship that morning in the synagogue is just disrupted. They can't even see straight. And they leave the worship gathering that Sabbath day. And Matthew says they go out, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they begin to plan together how they can murder Jesus. I read the story up to that point. And left to myself, I say, that's an injustice. That's not right. Somebody needs to make it right. And I'm a lot like James and John in that I want Jesus to walk outside the synagogue and call down fire on these people and to just blow them up and destroy them. I want justice to be done. And I think that means Jesus just annihilating these corrupt teachers. But Isaiah 42 says that he's gentle and patient, not just with the man with the crippled hand, but even with his enemies. And this is what Matthew tells us. Jesus, aware of this, he's aware that these men are standing over in the corner plotting how to murder him. He knows it. So he withdraws. Many followed him. He healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. Why did he do that? Well, it was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he lifts it right out of Isaiah 42 into the the gospel of Matthew. Behold, there's that word. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. 
my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice. There's that word again, until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. He is gentle and he's patient. With the sufferer in the synagogue with the crippled hand, he's gentle and he's patient. And with the men who are plotting to murder him in cold blood, he's gentle and he's patient. One more thing from Isaiah 42 about the servant of the Lord. He came to establish justice throughout the earth. This is verse 4. Scripture says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And I read Isaiah 42.4 this week, and I thought about it. It made me think about a cartoon I used to watch when I was a kid. If you're a 90s kid, how many of you ever watched Pinky and the Brain? If you're parents of 90s kids, maybe you saw your, your kids watching this. They were on Animaniacs, and then they got their own show, and it's two mice, two rats, and every episode is exactly the same. It's kind of like Gilligan's Island, right? The same thing happens over and over and over again. Every episode's exactly the same. There's a great theme song. I would love to sing it to you, but I'm not going to do it. I could sing it to you, but I'm not. So the theme song rolls, and then they show the two rats, Pinky and the brain. That's Pinky on the left with the paper clip, and there's the brain. And they're in their cage in this lab, the Acme Laboratory. And they start off, and I'm not going to try to imitate the voices. You can get online and, and find it. I watched it about 10 times in my office this week just for nostalgia's sake, but... Pinky says to the brain, beginning of every episode, what are we going to do tonight? And the brain says, the same thing we do every night, Pinky. We're going to try to take over the world. We're going to take over the world. And that's every episode. How are these two rats, these two mice, going to take over the world? And, of course, they never do it. Sometimes it's Pinky who messes everything up at the last minute. Sometimes the brain is just too cocky and overconfident and all falls apart at the end. But their mission is overtaking the world. How can we take over the world? And as kids, we love stories like that. It's exciting. Somebody's going to take over the world. And guess what? As grown-ups, we like stories like that. Right? We go watch movies where there's a bad guy who's trying to take over the world or destroy the world, and we need a hero who's going to come in and, and save the day. And Isaiah says, good news. You like stories about global domination? You like stories that involve worldwide conquest, these big-scale action hero stories? Well, the servant the one that I uphold, the one I've chosen, the one I delight in, the one who has my spirit, he's going to bring justice to the nations. He's not going to cry aloud. He's not going to lift up his voice. He's not going to hear it in the street. He's not going to break bruised reeds. He's not going to quench burning, faintly burning wicks. He is going to faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not grow faint, and he will not be discouraged until he has established justice, not just in Jerusalem, not just in the nation of Israel, not just among the Jewish people wherever they are spread among the nations, not just in the Middle East, but till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, the farthest place that you can imagine from home, they're waiting 
for that justice to be established. They're waiting. That's what Isaiah promised, and that's what was fulfilled in Jesus' life. Right? We keep tracing through the Gospel of Matthew all these parallels to Isaiah 42. And we come to Matthew chapter 28, and we read these words. Jesus speaking, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's all mine. All of the authority in the entire world belongs to me. And on the basis of that authority, I'm sending you to make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you. Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, God with us. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Look, some of you have never thought about this in your life. You laugh at Pinky and the Brain or you laugh at the the Bond movie where the bad guy wants to take over the world and you say, oh, how far-fetched is that? How imaginary is that? Look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of the plan to take over the world. You're in on it. You're a co-conspirator. You don't do it through violence. You don't do it with an army. We don't bring justice through legislation or through a certain political party being in power. We do it by following Jesus, by following the example of the servant. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2. We read it earlier. Have this mind in you, which you see in Jesus Christ. He was God and he became a servant. He's calling you to the same thing. Matthew 28, he's sending his people out. I have all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says. And on the basis of that authority, I'm sending you out to make disciples. And as we do it year after year after year after year, in the end, we win. Not because our army's bigger or stronger. Not because we're tied with this nation or that nation or this political party or that political party. But we win because through my death and my resurrection, all authority on heaven and in earth belongs to me. It's global domination. How does all this impact Christmas? Two simple thoughts. At Christmas, we celebrate the life and the death of the servant king. The servant king. Jesus was born to die. Born to die. That was the plan from before the foundation of the world. That Jesus would come and that through his death and his resurrection, he would bring justice. He would set all of the wrongs right. You see a moving example of this in John chapter 18. John 18. It's the end of Jesus' life. He's been arrested in the garden. He's been shuffled from trial to trial through the night. And he finds himself standing before Pilate, the governor of Rome, or the governor of the Roman province of Judea. And Pilate is talking with Jesus. And really, Pilate's trying to negotiate with Jesus. He has some respect for this man. He knows that he's innocent, but he finds himself in a rock and a hard place. And what he really wants Jesus to do is sort of assert himself. And he wants Jesus to recognize Pilate's power, his power, but he also wants Jesus to flex his own muscles a little bit. And he's backed into a corner, so he's trying to back Jesus into a corner, and he's pressuring him about whether or not he's a king. Your own people have turned you over. Why don't you fight? Why don't you speak up? 
That's the only mental category that Pilate has for justice and for for getting his, his will accomplished. Assert yourself. Do it by force. Why don't you speak up and do something? You won't even answer. And this is what we read in John 18. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. There's an outside invasion taking place that Pilate didn't understand. It's the kingdom of heaven invading the kingdom of men. And the only category Pilate has for bringing about justice is force. That's how the Romans did it. You just got to be stronger and more cruel and put your thumb on people. And he says, why don't you stand up if you're a king? And Jesus says, well, where I come from, that's not the way we do it. If we were like you, if I was a king like you or like Caesar, we would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. He's the servant king. The one who humbled himself and became a slave so that we could be brought back into God's family. That we could be restored in relationship with the Father. And here's the greatest irony. This servant king is born to die. And it's through his death that justice is established. It's not through winning a battle or a war with an army. It's not by winning an election or getting the right party in power. It's by dying that he establishes justice. It's by accepting injustice that everything else is set right. It's by putting himself in the place of those who have done everything wrong, you and me, and taking what we deserved that everything then gets set right. Isaiah says the servant will come to establish justice. And what Jesus was saying to Pilate is, this is how it's got to be. I didn't come to fight with an army for justice. I came to die for my people as a servant on a cross to set all things right. The last idea is this. Our servant king turns idolaters into worshipers. Idolaters into worshipers. And I'd like you to keep your Bible open. We're going to read a few more verses from Isaiah 42. I told you earlier there's four servant songs. This is the first. Each one has a, what you might call a postlude, where the, the poem or the song actually ends, and then there's sort of a, a concluding thought. And in Isaiah 42, the postlude is verse 5 to 9. You remember that before we jumped into Isaiah 42, we're talking about idolatry and idols and the folly of it and the the foolishness of it and the abomination of it. And then here comes the servant. The servant has come to change everything. He's come to set all things right. Everything that's not right, he's come to make it right. And in the postlude, one of the ideas right at the heart of it, in the middle of verse 7, is that idolaters will be turned to worshipers. And in poetic language, it's said like this those who are blind will have their eyes opened, those who are prisoners will be set free, those who couldn't see the truth are going to be able to see it, those who were bound by their sin are going to be released from it. And so we'll end by reading the last few verses in Isaiah 42, verse 5 to 9, and then we'll pray. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, 
who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray.